Pardon the interruption. I just want to tell you about a video uh, that I want you to check out. It features the one and only Chuck Norris. You remember Chuck Norris? The man's in his 80s. And, uh, you know, I'm no spring chicken. Nonetheless, I care about my health. I want to live a long time. I want to, uh, want to be healthy. I don't always get as many fruits and vegetables and herbs that are supposed to increase my energy levels in my own diet. So I saw this video that Chuck Norris has made. He's kicking butt. He's uh, working out. He's staying active. He has heaps of energy left over for his grandkids and so on. And he says that he, he is achieving all this by making one single change. And he feels like he's in his 50s. Go to mymorningkick.com slash Josh and watch Chuck Norris's video right now. That's mymorningkick.com slash Josh, M-Y-M-O-R-N-I-N-G-K-I-C-K dot com slash Josh. G'day humans, welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas. I am back in Australia, on terra firma, this is the first episode that I've recorded since my big adventures uh, off to uh, the Middle East and uh, West Africa, a little bit of time in Europe and uh, Asia on the way home. Someone asked me uh, what it's like to be, uh, to be back in civilization, which I thought was a delightfully politically incorrect and uh, sort of 1950s or even earlier, perhaps imperial attitude towards things. Here we are in civilization. What is it like to be in the uncivilized world where people wander around without so much as clothes on their person? Uh, so it is nice to be back in uh, civilization, in the civilized world, uh, a, a rich country, should we say, where things function. There are upsides to things functioning. That's why we escaped the, the, the prison of poverty and destitution and dysfunction that we had endured, lo, these many millennia. And we invented civilization. And now we're here. Uh, there, it has upsides, also downsides, and it was very nice to uh, to check out for a while. It was very nice to spend days where I wasn't looking at a watch, I wasn't looking at a clock, because there were no watches and there were no clocks and there were no phones. There was just uh, just me and the sea and a bit of cholera. And uh, no, I didn't catch it, I didn't get it, but it was there. Uh, and the breeze and uh, you know the the feces in the street. There's uh, there's a lot to love and a little bit not to love about uh, the uncivilized countries. Anywho, I'm back. So let's talk to Shadi Hamid, who's today's guest. Shadi's fascinating. First came to my attention in that whole period after 9-11, when we were doing a lot of hand-wringing about uh, uh, globalization, Islam, uh, what's happening to the future of civilization, uh, and so on. And Shadi, as an American Muslim, as a, a person born in America of Egyptian ancestry, uh, and and a political thinker had lots of interesting takes on Islam, on Islamism, on jihadism, and has subsequently become just a generally thoughtful person about uh, the political crises that we find ourselves in, about Trump, about wokeness, about the culture wars. Uh, he's got a good head on his shoulders. He won the his one of his books was named by Foreign Affairs as the best book of 2014, which is called Temptations of Power: Islamists and Illiberal Democracy in a New Middle East. His most recent book now is The Problem of Democracy: America, the Middle East, and the Rise and Fall of an Idea. He's a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. Uh, he's an assistant research professor in, of Islamic studies at Fuller Seminary. We really don't talk much about Islam. I talk. Well, I want to talk more about consensus and partisanship and di division because in a strange way, 
Shadi is not as much of a fan of consensus as I am. Uh, you know, my whole shtick here on this show and in much of my life is like, let's find ways of uh, having people talk to each other in ways that are more reasonable, that are more rational, where they can find common ground. Shadi is like, you know what? Maybe, maybe a certain amount of hostility and partisanship and hatred of the other is just natural to the functioning of democracy and we shouldn't try to suppress it. Uh, so here he is with that radical and uncomfortable idea. I hope you enjoy this convo as much as I did. The one and only Shadi Hamid. I loved your piece recently about... Uh, consensus and the case against consensus and polarization, oh, which I think would be an interesting place to to start, maybe. I mean, you talk about yeah. how in almost every major democracy nowadays, citizens dislike each other, and you don't think that's a problem. Why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that is a kind of, I guess, a weird view that we can talk about for sure. Yeah, I mean, go for it. Why don't you think that's a problem? Because I think it's widely diagnosed as being probably the problem of our time, like whether people blame social media or blame the culture wars or blame cancel culture or blame conservative trolling. Uh, there tends to be a general acceptance that we're not getting along as well as we should be. Why is that not a problem for you? Well, I think part of it is that we have these disagreements because we disagree on profound issues. Um, and we're not talking about policy differences where you can sort of split the middle. So I think there was a time when some of the divides in America, but also in other major democracies were policy oriented. So debates around universal healthcare, budget deficits, marginal tax rates, we're no longer in that period. We're debating foundational questions about what it means to be an American the nature of the American founding, the role of Christianity or lack thereof in public life, the future of the Republic as we know it. So I think those are things that are not amenable to resolution or consensus. And I wouldn't want to ask my fellow Americans to suppress their deepest convictions in the name of consensus because they should believe what they believe if, if that's important to them. Um, if their relationship with their God or, you know, as part of their um, communities or religious traditions, believe something that I don't like at all, that doesn't mean they should, you know, move over to me. Um, they can persist with their belief, regardless of how I feel about it, if it's important to them. Obviously, there are limits. I mean, there are things that are settled, that are beyond discussion or debate. Um, you know, for example, slavery. I mean, if someone comes and says, well, Shadi, slavery is important to me. That's part of my deepest convictions. <laughs> you know, you have to draw a line somewhere. Um, so there are certain things that even I, like I try to be like pretty open to alternative perspectives. Um, but, you know, we all have our limits. So that's one thing. And then I, I would say that um, polarization has its benefits we want our democracy to be alive and vibrant. And that means we have to accept some degree of messiness. And I, I worry sometimes that people want to get rid of that messiness, but then we, we lose a kind of creative chaos. And I think America's good with creative chaos, obviously. Mm. I mean, it's, there's too much of that. And I think one can easily argue that 
you know, sometimes it really feels like we've gone, you know, way too far in a particular direction, but I wouldn't want to, you know, return to some kind of approach of uniformity of where we try to suppress those, those very real differences. I think we'd lose quite a lot as a country. I have noticed, I mean, I did, one of the things that, that one does notice coming from a, a much more informal parliamentary democracy to the United States is that when I was living there, it was kind of exhausting the amount of pomp and formality and ceremony that goes along with American politics, the, uh, my good friends across the aisle and, you know, so-and-so from the great state of bloody blah and, you know, the shock and horror when someone during a State of the Union speech said, you lie to the president that became like a foundational to the news cycle yeah. for months thereafter. I mean, in Australian parliament, of course, people say you lie all the time, even if it's, you know, question time or whatever, uh, you could roll with the punches. And so I, I take what you mean about there being, I think the U S could probably, you know, turn the dial up towards, uh, creative, amicable disagreement and informality, uh, somewhat, but I'm curious what you think, the foundational disagreements that don't need to be papered over are because i mean when you say about the role of catholicism in public life or what america should be a lot of what i see and i i think the counter argument to yours is that we think we're fighting about big things but we're actually fighting meaningless proxy wars that tap into some deeper sense of like I don't know, homemade apple pie and all the, everything that we find to be, to hold dear. But in actual fact, we don't, we don't disagree about those things. Most Americans don't disagree about whether or not the country should be a democratic republic moving forward and whether or not it should remain a secular state or become a religious theocracy. They don't disagree about foundational stuff. They're just arguing about transgender people in bathrooms because they think that that's a proxy war for something bigger, but it's actually not. Well, on the issue of something like, um, you know, the trans debate in America, and I'm not sure how, um, how charged it is in, in other major democracies, but, you know, I think that that is actually foundational in a way. Um, it depends what's ultimately animating people. And you're right that a lot of these things seem, seem like proxies, but even if they're proxies, they're proxies for something deeper because we don't know how to maybe give voice to our, our deepest fears and convictions. We're not encouraged to talk about those openly. And then, so we tend to talk, we tend to fall back into partisan partisanship and tribalism because that's a language that is common now. And that's what we're encouraged to do by our politicians. You know, we're not, we're not talking about deep, deep philosophical questions. I mean, that would be my preference that we talk about the nature of the human person, um, the existence of God and how that relates to how we view the individual. I mean, those are those, when I think about first principles and the kind of basic moral intuitions that animate human beings, that's what registers for me. Obviously most ordinary Americans are either not thinking at that level or don't want to. And, you know, not, I, I don't mean to sound like an elitist, but I don't think it's realistic <laughs> to expect people to to kind of engage in deep philosophy when they have a lot of other things to worry about. But I think that you can bring people out on those deeper convictions because those are personal to them. And, and that is something people can share. I don't think, I don't think we encourage that. And so instead 
we don't even really know what we're debating, but the transgender issue, I think is one good example of this. You know, when we talk about gender identity and gender fluidity and how these basic conceptions of gender are changing quite rapidly in a way that people certainly weren't expecting as recently as five or six years ago, um, people are fearful, but then we have to ask ourselves, what is underneath that fear? And that's where we get to, I think, deeper contentions around religion, because at least the three you know, major monotheistic faiths do have very particular views on, on, on gender, on sex, on the nature of the human person. Um, and that, so there is, there, there is a link there. Um, and so when people are worried about public education, what their kids are being taught at school, and they're worried about hyper wokeness or whatever we want to call it. I mean, gender identity always seems to come up because even if people don't realize it, they feel that this speaks to something deeper about one's fundamental worldview. Right. And, but isn't, isn't the question, don't we need to, de- in order to determine whether or not the polarization and partisanship and, and mutual dislike that has evolved between segments of the citizenry is constructive or not, we need to touch on whether or not the squabbles about these kinds of culture war issues are actually leading to productive conversations about the deepest things that we care about, or are they just inflaming and aggravating superficial differences without actually ever quite reaching to the crux of the things that we do care about, like our identity in the world and the role of public education in our lives and the meaning of leading a spiritual life. Yeah, totally agree. That would be my preference. And, you know, in my own work, I always try to get back to this question of why do we believe what we believe? And as someone who does a lot of work on the intersection of religion and politics, I, you know, I think, I think most people are animated by what might be called religious impulses, even if they're not themselves religious, that we as human beings are in a constant search for meaning, belonging, and identity. So I think at some level, if we allow ourselves to just go a little bit, you know, deeper in our own consciousness, there are things that we care passionately about that are foundational. And if we can find ways to bring those out by being more intentional, um, you know, there's, it's a long, I suppose, like a difficult, a difficult conversation about how to get there. And there's a number of, I think, paths forward on that. Some of it has to do with um, elites, uh, so-called elites in media and politics, and they set the tone to some degree. So if you have politicians who are always exacerbating and, and intensifying superficial partisan or tribal divides, then obviously their supporters are going to follow suit. Um, and the media plays a role because politicians respond to what the New York Times is saying on a regular basis. So if the New York Times is very engaged in culture wars, politicians are going to follow suit. Their supporters are going to be outraged about whatever woke controversy there is. So, I mean, I think there's a, there's a kind of broader ecosystem that contributes to the superficiality. And I don't have a kind of catch-all solution except to say that um, we as individuals have agency in our own families and communities and the kinds of ecosystems that we're part of. And if we realize this is the problem, we can do more on our own 
and you know you're doing precisely this with you know with your podcast uh, Josh so you know that and that does have an impact so that's what we all have to do and then hope that over time more people come to their senses because I think most Americans and I would suspect also um, not that I know a lot about the Australian people and their sensibilities but I think I think people generally tend to get exhausted by superficiality if there's too much of it. And it might be thrilling for a while, and that's why people come to Twitter for their dopamine rush to get outraged about the next outrage. But my sense is that Americans are exhausted to various degrees, and if and if they knew there were other options, they'd probably want to live a little bit differently when it comes to mm. how they consume politics and the news around them. What are the other options? Uh, the other options on? On how we could live, like you were saying, if Americans knew that there were other options about how to engage with each other, then they would take them. Yeah. Okay, so one example, I, I wrote a piece about this in The Atlantic a few weeks back. Uh, the title was something like, You're Better Off Not Knowing, where I basically made the case for, you know, ignorance is bliss, obviously in a more nuanced way. I mean, I'm not saying that people should deliberately be ignorant, but I do advocate for a news-free diet to some extent, or what might be called slow news. And this was also in the context of the Trump indictment story. And one thing that I said, um, you know, repeatedly, and I think I've tried to live up to this, is do not read any news stories about the Trump indictment. <laughs> it will serve no benefit to you. It will not make you smarter. It will have no effect on the world around you unless you're actually working in the corner of the legal system that is directly involved in the Trump indictment process, okay, mm -hmm. you probably should know it because it relates to your work. But if you're just an ordinary American, you will gain nothing from following this. And I think that could actually be extended for a lot of the Trump-related news, which is, um, I'm actually not sure. I know some people might make the argument that, oh, well, we have to know it we have to know what's going on with Trump because of X or Y reason. And I tend to challenge that because if you, if you know Trump is bad already, then, you know, this is just going to be a confirmation of what you already know. It's not adding something to your knowledge of the world around you. And it's doing precisely what, we, what we've been saying people should avoid, which is it focuses us on a kind of superficial horse race kind yeah. of politics instead of the deeper questions of, what is important to you in terms of your values, for example? Yeah, so I mean, Trump is, a, yeah. Trump is a particularly noxious case uh, of this because it's able to you're able to pursue the most prurient and uh, self-absorbed version of uh, news consumption at the same time as telling yourself that it's deeply important that you stay across it because of his importance as a as a public figure. So I think the the only reason to follow the Trump indictment would be the same reason as you might follow the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, basically, you're interested. <laughs> like you know, you're you're you want to be a fly on the wall. You think it's cool. It's a cool thing way to pass your time to like to be a voyeur of, of that thing. But you're able to couch the Donald Trump uh, case in a loftier purpose than uh, just pissing on the bed 
uh, with Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I I'm, warned... I'm with you on the whole news cycle thing. I've been arguing for years that that really, if so, if a if a story doesn't make it into the weekend New York Times or the Economist, you didn't need to know about it in the first place. So, <laughs> you know, just leave yeah. it until the weekend and then catch up. Yeah, not a bad rule of thumb. Um, but I'd even say for those who want to follow something Trumpy for the entertainment purpose. I think that can be okay in theory, but in practice, we can't help but be either like moved by outraged by, especially if you're obviously if you're an opponent of Trump and you're following the indictment news because you think it's entertaining, that's going to bring out a negative side of your personality. It's going to make you feel outraged about Trump's badness and the fact that he's gotten away with it for all of this time. And so I think that there has to be a preemptive approach to the news that even if you're like, oh, I really want to hear about this story because I think it'll be fun, you know, maybe it's best to take a moment and um, preemptively decide that you're going to have a red line. So I'm very much a believer in, you know, um, structure. And one reason why I think religions are good, even if you don't believe in God, is because they provide a structure. And once we commit to that structure, um, we kind of remove our own choice. And I think one of the predicaments of our time is unlimited choice or the perception of unlimited choice. So people have to sort of take the first step to create, to create boundaries and structure for themselves because we're weak. We're weak as human beings. We're mere mortals and we're going to be led astray if we're not careful, that's one of the reasons that I bought like one of those cell phone lock boxes because people say, well, Shadi, just don't look at your phone, but I can't be trusted on such matters. So mm. I buy a box to lock my phone in there and then I don't have a choice solved. <laughs> Did you really yeah. get one of those? Yeah. No, that's serious. That's not like a metaphor. <laughs> how do you, uh, how do you, open, how do you set it and how do you open it again? You can choose your own time. So, you know, you can be reasonable on that. But um, some of these phone lockboxes have a little opening in case you need to, like, see something for, like, emergencies. But some, like, there's no way to open the box at all or even look at your phone. Um, uh-huh. You know, so there's, there's, there's different, you know, there's different ways to do it. But generally speaking, the box itself cannot be broken you have maybe like two or three emergency times that are allowed. And that after that, you can never open the box. You would have to maybe like get a hammer and smash it. But these are available on Amazon. So it's actually something that is like accessible to people. And what was your thinking when you decided to finally get the box? What like had you tried to self-moderate? Yeah, I've tried. And, you know, I have systems for my laptop. So I use... um a freedom restriction app. That's that's not actually not a, a best way to describe <laughs> yeah, it. It's called, it's, it's called yeah, it's called freedom. Sorry, yeah. it's called freedom. And there's another one called cold turkey that I sometimes use. But that so that's a similar idea. You put a timer on your laptop for say like two hours. In those two hours, there's no way to override it, and you can't go on Twitter. But you choose the websites that are restricted. Mm. And yeah, so I think those well, things you are on your laptop. Sorry, you can restart your laptop. Oh, um, actually, I'm I, I'm pretty sure with the with Freedom, which is the one that I use, restarting 
doesn't work or maybe i'm just under the illusion that restarting doesn't work so either way i don't even want to know i mean let's <laughs> yeah. pretend let's just ignorance is bliss better yeah, not to know bliss. that's right okay yeah. sure sure shadi you can restart it as many times as you want <laughs> you can get a whole new computer and it still won't connect to the internet as long as it knows that you previously had freedom on your other computer right exactly <laughs> Um, yeah, that's interesting. So you, and uh, was there a point at which you had tried to set rules around phone use and then gave up and were like, yeah, I'm going to get the stupid box. Yeah. I mean, part of my problem isn't so much when I'm working, but even things that I, that are important to me that I just can't focus on that much anymore. Reading novels, if my phone is in the same room, even if it's far away, there is going to be that temptation. So I don't even want to have to wonder, oh, Shadi, you know, it's okay this one time you've been reading for mm -hmm. 15 minutes, go across the room and take a very quick look. I need to remove that consideration entirely or if I'm watching a classic movie. So I have the Criterion channel and I try to watch classic movies on a regular basis. I mean, the great films of all time. Just, um, and you know, when the pandemic started, I actually had an Ingmar Berg Bergman marathon, the great Swedish director. I'd always heard pretentious people talking about him, but I didn't really know what they were talking about. So I thought to myself, well, should I be watching Bergman films and seeing if there's something profound and beautiful? And mm. in fact, there is something profound and beautiful. But um, when you watch movies and you read novels, I think we're sort of at this point, a lot of us in this present reality, where we don't know how to focus for long enough periods of time to really enjoy what we're experiencing. And I think it's worse with the youth, if um, the younger generation, <laughs> and I feel bad for them, like it's bad enough for me, I can't imagine them. And I have a younger brother and the people who's eight years younger than me, and even the people who are younger than him, I sometimes see how they use their phones and it's getting worse, not better. Mm. So we got to take action and I think we got to be proactive. I was just at a, at a water park. I was on, uh, on holiday and went to one of these uh, big water slide parks. And there, was a, there were a group of, I guess, probably about like eight to 10 year old boys. And one of them had a phone in a waterproof uh, like sleeve around his neck. And the whole time, while his friends were like cajoling each other, waiting in line in one of these big long lines to get to the water slide, uh, like getting bored, having fun with each other, teasing each other, he was on his phone the whole time and then taking photos of everything and videoing everything and seemingly uploading all of the experience that he wasn't having to YouTube to document the experience that oh my he God. was supposedly having yeah i don't know what this youtuber or that's Instagram sad channel, but yeah it's like i felt like such an old fuddy-duddy of being like kids these days wagging my finger at them but like your friends are here having fun you're having a kind of fun i suppose i mean i don't know what he's looking <laughs> at he might be looking at something that's more fun than whatever his friends are doing but he's certainly not present whatever fun he's yes. having is is and whatever community he's part of it's not it's not a flesh and blood one you know, and it's just, it just struck yeah. me. I was like, even here where he's doing supposedly the most fun thing that an eight-year-old can do, which is go to a water park and ride down water slide, go down water slides with your friend, you're still that the 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 I don't know, the dopamine hit of the device is still more than that. Yep, it is hard to resist. And I, I think that that's one of the great things about going to the beach and swimming 
in the water. I was going to say just being on the beach, but of course people can have their phones like when they're on the sand, but there are very few moments in our lives now where there is no way to have a phone. And Mm -hmm. I think swimming in the beach, especially if it's a, you know, a place you haven't been to before a foreign country, whatever it might be, that gives you a kind of total freedom because you're in the water. And until I knew about this waterproof device that you put put around <laughs> your neck, it didn't occur to me that there was a way to bring your phone yep. while swimming in the beach. Yep. So they've even come up with that. And yep. you know, obviously that's unfortunate. And I almost long for the times where you'd have a long air, um, plane ride, mm. like six, seven hours, and Wi-Fi wasn't even an option. So you literally had no choice. You, you had know, to be really- with your... Hmm. There's an there's an interesting cultural phenomenon here, which is that Qantas, the the Australian Australia's national airline, yeah. has, has consistently dragged its feet on in flight Wi Fi for exactly this reason because Aussies don't tend to want it when they poll huh? when they poll their their business travellers. Unlike Americans, Australians like the excuse to tune out. They, you know, people are not people. Don't want to be pinging all over the place, and especially Australians who have come to to get used to having fourteen to twenty two hour journeys to go to business meetings in Los Angeles or or Europe. There's a. It's nice having that day where no one can reach you, and then you land, you have a shower, then you open your email, you see what's been going on. But the idea of being expected to spend those fourteen hours also connected just feels lousy. Yeah. You guys seem so chill. <laughs> We're not, but I think that's just an interesting, that is one interesting way in which we've been able yeah. to in a certain level of chillness or perspective. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and I've been thinking about this a lot because um, I I have been preoccupied with productivity for much of my life. So even when you said a 14-hour flight without in-flight Wi-Fi, for me, I was like, oh, I could maybe handle three to four hours. I'm not trying to go overboard here. But Josh is talking <laughs> about 14 hours. Like I get a little bit jittery right. because I think about the lost productivity as an American who is, you know, you know, somewhat ambitious, uh, like many of us are, and we care a lot about our careers and our writing and all that. Like I I have I have come to the point in my life where I think it is a a pretty serious problem, but it's also one that's difficult to fix. If you've been oriented to view your work as a calling and, you know, I love what I do and I love writing. So it becomes difficult for me to separate between what's called work and what's called life. Um, Mm. and sometimes I wonder like, what would it be like to have like a normal nine to five day job where you can just come home and put everything to the side and be totally present for your family and friends. I think with the kind of, those don't really exist anymore either. I mean, unless you're (laughs) really, unless you're, unless you're working with your hands, any, even the most, even the most boring nine to five rudimentary office job still carries with it an expectation that you're going to be available to respond to emails. Yeah usually after after hours. But it's interesting that you say that productivity for you is tied up in the idea of being connected because, of course, you could spend the 14 hours in flight writing. Of course, you could write. You just yeah. couldn't Google. So it depends how, like, part of the problem, part of the challenge for me, and I think the problem for knowledge workers at the moment is what is the productivity that we're pursuing even? Like, I mean, if the productivity is catching up on a backlog of emails, 
I mean, I don't know who said it, but like your inbox is a to-do list written by other people. You, <laughs> I, you don't need to be doing that. You know, you could be watching the in-flight entertainment for those 14 hours and and your life would be just as good not having gotten on top of your productivity hacks. But if you want to spend the 14 hours doing true deep creative work, well, then nobody needs an internet for that. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's a good reminder for me. I mean, I, I, I find that after an hour or two, there's an article I have to search for, or um, I'm trying to think about the other things. There, there just do tend to be things where it's like, oh, I need to find out about this, or I need to check this fact, or let me run this by a friend who specializes in this particular topic. But you're right that if we force ourselves, like it's probably for the best. And there is a way to write and get very deep into that without distractions. And it is a reminder to me to think more that way. Yeah. And if you don't know it, then you put a little parenthetical in saying, anecdote about uh, history of dental care in Utah, question mark. And then you come back to it when you're yeah. online, when you need to ask somebody about it. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, now you've made me jealous of your little box. I need to get a little box to put my phone in. Uh, <laughs> if only to be present with my kids, I have five-year-old twins now who, uh, and I, I do notice just how engulfing the device can be when you just go to it to check one particular fact and then, you know, you you blink and 17 minutes later, it has occupied your attention while they're watching TV. Yeah, I think... For, I oh, think when you have kids, I mean, I don't have kids personally. And I, I think then some of this stuff becomes more urgent because there is a lot at stake when you have, you know, when you're around your kids, my presumption is that you want to be as present as possible, particular, particularly when they're young. I think for those of us who um, live alone and have supposedly a lot of free time, or at least we have a lot of choice with our time, we can maybe afford to um, not be present, it's still not a good thing, but I think there's maybe more leeway. Mm. But I think that when you're around other people, and I try to make a rule of this myself, like when I'm having uh, dinner with someone or dinner with friends or when I'm with my parents, there's a no phone rule. Like we don't bring out our phones um, and you just kind of, that just becomes a structural part of how you approach social interaction. And I'm, again, like I'm surprised about how younger, younger folks tend to bring out their phones a lot when they're with people in real life. And that to me, um, when you're with, around other people, like that's pretty important. Like, even if you don't fully realize it, like the people around us should matter or you mm. should try to find a way to realize that as, as quickly as, as possible. And they matter even when they're boring or annoying, which I think is the is the problem that the phone is fixing, <laughs> right? Nobody looks at their phone when they're having a fantastic, engaging conversation with someone that's exactly. really flying. You you pull the phone or you glance down at the phone or you tap the screen to see if there are any messages when things have gotten boring. Uh, and when you say that you, you know, if you have kids, you assume that you want to speak, be as present with them as possible. I mean, that's true in the abstract, but in the practical, you want to spend... 15 to 20 minutes with kids. You don't want to spend three hours with kids. I mean, you've met kids, right? right? You know, they're like, yes, they're, I have. They're really, they're really interesting, beguiling, intriguing for approximately 12 to 17 minutes. And then they're annoying and boring, uh, you know, and you want to, you'd rather know what Shadi is saying about this or that on his blog than talk yet again to a five year old about flowers. Um, 
So the uh, the challenge is in in I think working through or pushing through rather from the easy entertaining components of human interaction and human life to the more challenging bits, either because you know you've found that your device is an escape from uh, the more annoying aspects of parenting or an escape from the duller moments of friendship or an escape from the boredom of your own lived reality if you don't have anyone else in the room with you and you're just trying to escape your own head. Um, yeah, I don't know where that's going, but maybe just do you want to just have a final comment about devices before we move on to culture more broadly? Because I'm intrigued by the fact that you went nuclear on buying the box. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess the final comment would be, I mean, this is tied to broader cultural questions, the state of our society. And there's been a lot of writing recently about um, the depression epidemic among especially young teenage girls um, in the U.S. And the levels of suicidal ideation, for example, are in the stratosphere. I think the recent mm -hmm. CDC support report came out with something like one out of every three uh, teenage girls in America have contemplated suicide or something to that effect. And there is a crisis here. And it's not monocausal, but certainly it has the the role of phones does seem to be a contributing factor um and the role of phone smartphones is tied to other things it's tied to not being as social in the real world with the people that we care about or not even having enough people to care about in the first place i mean there is a loneliness epidemic as well where a growing number of americans have a relatively small number of friends and sometimes don't even have um, a friend they consider close enough to to say that to a pollster. Um, you know, really just shocking numbers all the way around. So when we talk about devices, there's a way to kind of treat it in a, in a you know, it can be like a fun topic to discuss, but it also speaks to something quite deeper in our society where we feel that something isn't quite right. And I think so many of us feel that now that like it's hard to live well and that's true on the individual level, but it also seems to, seems to seep into the community level and also the national level. Um, and all of these things are interconnected in complex ways. But, you know, a lot of Americans feel like something is fundamentally wrong in their own lives, but also in the, in the life of their country, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about what's wrong in the life of the country, I mean, you said earlier when we were talking about polarization and consensus, that certain things are settled uh, that we don't want to disagree on, but there are legitimate major disagreements, nonetheless, that we don't want to paper over uh, in you know a misguided attempt to draw greater consensus than actually exists. But some people would say that a lot of the things that are settled are now being unsettled and the things that we had taken for granted are being questioned again. So the peaceful transfer of power during an election, you know, the left would say that the right is is giving up on the notion of having faith in democratic institutions. Uh, the loser of an election, uh, you know, graciously yielding to the winner, regardless of any irregularities that they might believe there was in the election, that that's a time-honored tradition of American democracy that's being uh, overturned. That, And then I guess on the other side, the right would probably say that America's traditional faith in the ability of the public square to 
boisterously hash out uh, different ideas is being undermined by a cancel culture and the woke left who are trying to constrain what you can say. And so, I, yeah, I wonder what you, what you think about there being previously settled issues that we all agreed on now up for grabs. Yeah, so the democracy part of it is is obviously crucial and I think this is in some sense the fundamental question that a lot of Americans are contending with which is what do we do when democracy produces bad outcomes? And actually um you know my most recent book was partly about trying to answer this question and I called it the problem of democracy precisely because I do think this is the problem that not just Americans are contending with, but also across the globe. I mean, if you look at um, India, you know, India, Israel, Italy, Sweden, most of the ma- most of our major the major democracies in the world today are the politics in these countries are feeling it's feeling ex- ex- extremely existential. It feels like everything is at stake. That each election is the most important election and everything hangs in the balance. Mm. And you have the rise to power of parties or candidates that have radical views in one direction or another and are challenging um, norms and the way that we looked at our democracies until fairly recently. We thought that there was a triumph of the end of history of liberal democracy and so forth. And now we're finding out that a lot of things are being contested in a way they hadn't been previously. And some of the examples are obvious, you know, immigration 10 to 15 years ago, wasn't as live of an issue in many Western democracies. And it was seen as, you know, there's an establishment consensus and let's stick with it. And obviously that wasn't sustainable. And at the end of the day, people said, well, even if it's unfashionable or quote unquote bad, we want to vote about our preferences on this particular issue instead of leaving it up to experts or technocrats who are unelected and so forth. So I think that, um, you know, democracy is really the question of how do we live with outcomes that we don't like? And there was a time when the outcomes weren't that bad. You know, when I was growing up in the 1990s, you know, elections didn't seem like the end of the world. If anything, they seemed like they didn't matter much at all. And you might recall some of this discourse around, oh, well, Republicans and Democrats aren't that different. You know, Bush versus Al Gore. Oh, you know, they're mm-hmm. just two sides of the same coin and that sort of thing. If only we could kind of, we, we long for those times now looking back because now the, the, the differences between candidates really seem stark. Um, just take obviously you still have that rhetoric. You still have the the Tweedledum and Tweedledee rhetoric. It's funny, no matter how far apart the the policies become. I mean, Tucker Carlson just released his first video after having been fired, in which he's saying that no one in mainstream media is having real conversations about the biggest issues that that we face because everyone is forced to talk about a consensus. So, you know, you hear Russell Brand on Joe Rogan's show and they're all talking about how, you know, it doesn't matter who you vote for because ultimately everything is is controlled by big pharma and a, a global elite. Like that's becoming, I think, an increasingly fashionable view in the online uh, sort of discourse, if not in the elite media, mainstream media. 
discourse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting point. And, you know, as someone who doesn't follow the Russell brands of the world all that closely, but, you know, I have gotten a sense of it here and there in certain corners of the internet. So it is remarkable that even with the profound differences that we see between, say, Trump and Joe Biden in 2024, I mean, I think that's a pretty wide gap in terms of potential directions for the country. But you're right, there are still people out there who are saying, um, it doesn't really matter. I think it's become harder to make that case unless people buy into it compared to that kind of, um, you know, prosperous, peaceful era, the late 90s, early 2000s, <laughs> at least before 9-11. I but, think it was, um, it was a piece that I think Jonah, Jonah Goldberg uh, wrote in, uh, who's a, a sort of center-right commentator who has a, a newsletter called The Dispatch. And I think he... Yeah, that's right. I'm just finding it now. He's, he teases Tucker Carlson for saying that nobody talks about any of the big issues by saying, <laughs> by conducting a thought experiment and saying, imagine that you have like one specific quirky issue that you wish everybody would focus on. Like you think that the Habsburg monarchy should be restored and that America should become an imperial holding of the Habsburg empire. So every time someone complains about taxes being too high, or dog owners not cleaning up after their dogs, you say that such problems won't exist under the new re regime. Once you get Carl von Habsburg on the throne, then there won't be a problem <laughs> anymore. And it, he likens this this idea that like nobody's talking about the big issues to be basically the rantings of a person whose definition of big issues is just skewed away from what most people care about. Like if you're a one trick, if if you're Tucker Carlson or Russell Brand, you may just be agitated by things that most other people don't care about hearing debated, like whether or not uh, constitutional democracies are the best way to uh, sort out our differences. And, you know, like we, most of us regard that as falling into the category of things that you were talking about as being settled earlier in the, the conversation. And uh, you can put on a, a cloak of kind of brave question asker by trying to poke holes in things that the rest of us have all taken for granted and saying like, nobody else is having these conversations, man. I'm the only person who's brave enough to have these conversations. <laughs> but maybe it's not that we're cowards. Maybe we just agree on a lot more than the people who are saying that they're brave do. You know, I think part of it is that we don't even have a baseline on what constitutes a big issue. And that go brings us back to the whole Trump indictment story. Some Americans clearly think this is a really big deal. I don't. And there would be no obvious way for us to resolve that. And at the end of the day, they should be free. They're free to think whatever they want about what matters to them. I mean, that's an intensely personal choice. And I think there's some wisdom in learning to let go. First of all, if you're so worked up about politics in the kind of Russell Brandish way that you just, you know, you just outlined, you know, there that's to me that speaks of I you know, I don't know what Russell Brand's life is like, but you know, there should be a fullness in people's lives that takes them away from politics. And sometimes I've talked about the core four, and I didn't make this up. I just probably like um, you know, found it from someone else and repurposed it slightly. But I think a lot of people talk about, you know, faith, family, community, and friendship. And I think I, you know, maybe the order should be a little bit different depending on what you prioritize. But there is something to be said. And maybe I'm a little bit of a traditionalist in that regard. And, uh, you know, 
people see that as a little bit old fashioned to focus on those things. But I think there is a wisdom in not seeing politics as what orients your life. And I think because Americans, but also in most major democracies, the level of educational attainment has gone up significantly. That doesn't mean that people are necessarily smarter or, or more wise, but it does mean that a growing number of Americans are aware of political debates around them. Like it's very hard to resist like most people will be vaguely aware of some Trump related debate, even if they're not otherwise that engaged in, in various political topics, it's very hard to avoid. But now what that means is that everyone is aware of things in a way that, in a way that makes it very hard to let go and very hard to, take a step back and focus attention on your own small circle locally, everything becomes nationalized and even local elections become nationalized. That um, if Trump talks about some issue, then the local candidate for dog catcher is talking about Trump talking about that issue. And it becomes very hard to, to kind of get out of that cycle. But I think this is a skill that all of us should, should nurture, which is, learning to let go of politics in some way. And that would require also accepting that many of our fellow Americans are never going to be convinced of what we're convinced of. I mean, there were 74 million Trump supporters. They're not going to go away. You're not going to be able to persuade them. They are part of the fabric of this country. And for those Americans on the left who believe that Trump supporters have to be defeated. They have to be just brought under heel. That to me is a fundamentally anti-democratic spirit. I mean, maybe they're not as bad as the folks who believe in the big lie of 2020, that the election was stolen from Donald Trump and certainly not the people, you know, the much smaller number who participated in, in the January 6th insurrection. But it's all part, I think, of a similar impulse to not be comfortable with people who are fundamentally different than you. I mean, there are only two parties in America. If you think that Democrats should win every single election for the rest of your life because they're the only good party and the Republican Party is something close to evil or neo-fascist or whatever it might be, then you don't actually believe in living in a democracy because sooner or later, the other party will win. Maybe it could have been different in a multi-party democracy where you had 10 choices, but we only have two real ones in America. So you better hope that at some point the Republican Party wins, because if they never win, then we're probably no longer living in a democratic society. Right. But what's the limiting principle to how the other party can behave while still uh, deserving your endorsement of democracy. I mean, just take the thought experiment of them of the the GOP becoming a genuinely fascist uh, regime. Let's suppose, let you know, imagine that the the darkest imaginings of the left come to fruition in the form of Richard Spencer and Tucker Carlson together on a populist ticket that sort of uh, smells a, a bit like I don't know Turkey or somewhere like that, then wouldn't your your highest allegiance to small L liberal principles be to make sure that that party never gets into power, even at the expense of democratic instincts? 
Yeah, so I'm a small D Democrat. So when democracy and liberalism are in tension, I tend to prioritize the democracy part of it. And here I'm not talking about liberals in the kind of modern American parlance, but the classical liberal tradition. Unfortunately, um, a growing number of Americans are not small L liberals. They want to, they're interested in non-liberal alternatives. And of course, we've seen that elsewhere across the globe, you know, whether it's, you know, far right Hindu nationalism in India, the far right in Israel, I mean, the whole list of places. And of course, you know, as someone who lived in the Middle East during the Arab Spring and someone who does a lot of work on Middle East related issues, um, in the Middle East, we've had situations where there are free elections and who wins? Islamist parties. In other words, parties that believe that Islam or, or Islamic law should play a central role in public life. Now we have two, we have a couple different options when we have situations like this. We can say that these parties are beyond the pale and they have to be somehow suppressed or prevented from participating or the military has to step in and counter them. And that's obviously specific to the Middle East context where we've had military coups against democratically elected governments that were seen as too religiously oriented or too quote unquote Islamist. So I think that this is actually, um, you know, it's really a fundamental dilemma. And because I see, I think at some level, democracy is about respecting that individuals, voters have agency. And if voters want to collectively choose a path that we consider illiberal or Islamist or communist or socialist, think about whatever bad outcome you don't like. And Trump for Americans would be the obvious example for 2024. You mentioned Tucker Carlson. If Tucker Carlson decides to run for the Republican nomination and he ends up winning fair and square against Joe Biden, I mean, God forbid, I hope that doesn't happen. But if it did and it was a free and fair election, we would have no choice, in my view, as Americans, but to respect that outcome. And then our task ahead of us would be to live to fight another day through the ballot box, to wait for the subsequent election and to try to undo undo a bad decision on the part of right. our, our, our but, fellow I mean, You know, Ian, I'm sure you've encountered this criticism a million times since the Arab Spring because you've courted controversy in, you know, your opinion on <laughs> Middle Eastern uh, issues and, and Arab issues by being such a pro, by being even more of a Democrat than people who think of themselves as being Democrats like myself are comfortable being. Like, And if you go to the extreme of the Islamist party of the you know the 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 teasing uh, parody of Arab democracy that you sometimes hear, which is uh, one person, one vote, one time, and then uh, once you're in power, you don't hold any more elections. Uh, if you take that, if you take Hamas or uh, some other Islamist party as an example, uh, what do you do when you're in a democratic situation where either, I guess, let's take two scenarios: either the the party that's been democratically elected tries to systematically undermine the levers of democracy to give it an unfair advantage and let it stay in power. So maybe it doesn't not hold elections, but the elections become something like elections in Russia have become. Or alternatively, it's so enthusiastic about imposing its vision of what civil society is on the country 
that you end up dramatically infringing the rights of individual human beings or of some communities. Uh, you know, in Islamist theocracies, that might be the way that gays or women or Jews are persecuted. If it were to take a Western democratic form, it may be in the way that again, gays or, well, again, Jews perhaps. <laughs> and But, you know, to take the left-wing caricature, maybe it would be the way that they treat Muslims in America or the way that they try to crack down on religious uh, or, uh, sorry, rather on impose their, their religious views on uh, women's abortion rights or whatever it might be. Like how far does the party have to stray from the ideals of either democracy or liberalism for it to no longer be playing a game worth upholding? Yeah, well, this is actually, I think, the fundamental question. And, you know, it depends where you draw the line. So I draw the line in a different place than a lot of people. So I tend to make a distinction between the means of democracy and the ends. So I'm very adamant about protecting, for example, the right to protest, the right to form a political party, the right to criticize the government, access to the media, because without, without those things, you don't have alternation of power the opposition has to have a realistic shot of winning. That to me is a fundamental concern. So when you start to have a ruling party that is elected, but then makes it extremely difficult, if not impossible for the opposition to win, then that's crossing an unacceptable line. Because my basic principle is that people have to have the right to change their minds and to vote differently they have to have some right to recourse. They have to have some way of um, bringing about different electoral outcomes in subsequent elections. So that's absolutely critical to me. But I, may, I distinguish between that and the ends of politics, which deal more with cultural and religious and identity-based issues. So for example, if an Islamist party comes to power in Egypt through free and fair elections, and wants to Islamize the educational curriculum, restrict alcohol consumption, have sex segregation at some levels of public schooling, um, you know, uh, divorce, making divorce proceedings uh, more difficult um, for, you know, for women, let's say. These are things that I find bad, and I would never want to live under a government that pursues those ends. And in the American case, we can add access to abortion. I mean, I'm I'm pro-choice, um, at least for you know, in the reasonable sense of you know, the first twelve to you know, sixteen weeks or something like that. Um, and um, but there are examples even here in the U.S. where elected majorities on the state level are saying, actually, you know what, we're going to restrict re abortion access. But I see that basket of issues as being about the fundamental questions of the nature of the good. And I think that individual voters should have the right to pursue illiberal, let's say, ends in that regard. Um, you know, or, you know, in the case of Muslim majority countries in the Middle East, not blasphemy laws are another one that comes up. So if you have a party that wants to, for example, um, make illegal uh, insulting divine texts or de demeaning the Quran or something like that. I'm just coming up with examples that I think people can get their head around. Mm -hmm. I want What I want to say is you don't have to like that. You can think to yourself, that's, oh my God, wow, that is terrible. I can't imagine that. But 
ultimately, I do believe there has to be some deference to elected majorities as long as the constitution in a given country isn't being violated because we're not talking about blank slate politics. In any of these contexts, parties are operating within an existing legal and constitutional framework. So obviously they can't do illegal things. I mean, you would hope, and it's not always the case, obviously, but in theory, you'll have a judicial branch, at least to some degree, even if it's a relatively weak democracy that can you know, provide some checks on that. But um, I'm much more permissive in what I think majorities should be able to pursue. And that includes if they want to pursue Tucker Carlson's vision of an anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim society. And I'd have to, as an American Muslim myself, um, contend with the consequences of that. And the Muslim ban under Trump, which I was very much opposed to and thought was pretty damn scary, Ultimately, I think that was under the jurisdiction of the executive branch to pursue at least a version of that Muslim ban. Um, and my and so all I had left was to say, well, you know, I'm, we're going to have to find a way to live with this, but we're going to fight hard to push back and to protest and to speak out and to hope that enough Americans come to their senses and move away from this kind of politics. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned the executive branch because one hallmark of American politics that's different from politics in most other liberal democracies is the reliance on the judicial system instead of the executive or especially instead of the legislative branches to do people's bidding in America. I mean, the 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 intensity around the wars over the Supreme Court and the the aggressiveness of the Supreme Court in imposing... Uh, completely different interpretations of the same pieces of text, depending on who, what justices are there, is really un, unparalleled and is seems bizarre to people outside it. Where justices, where the selection of justices is much less partisan and is and, and they regard their roles as being much more humble and uh, and and functional, and most of the policies around things like women's reproductive rights and so on are hashed out by legislators in parliaments and congresses uh, and that that's where decisions get made, not by nine people in robes, as the cliche goes. Yeah, totally agree. And, you know, I think that to take Roe v. Wade, for example, um, I if I could kind of redo history, you know, I think that I'd wonder how things would have turned out if instead of imposing a particular outcome through judicial fiat that America experienced something more similar to advanced European democracies where abortion access was guaranteed, but not through a Supreme Court, but through, as you, as you alluded to, um, parliaments passing legislation. Um, and, and that's a big debate on its own, but I do think we have to ask ourselves whether it is the appropriate role for unelected judges, or to be honest, like anyone who's unelected. And we can talk about technocrats and bureaucracies who make, uh, who make decisions and are unaccountable in some way. But some of these issues are important enough for them to be subject to voter preferences. Americans should have a say on foundational questions around the nature of the human person. I mean, abortion is dealing with something that is very dear to a lot of Americans on both sides, regardless, you know, 
people who think it is a non-negotiable right, but people on the other side who think that it's non-negotiable in the sense of abortion shouldn't be allowed because it's tantamount to murder. I mean, those are both very, I don't want to say that they're morally equivalent. I'm just trying to say that they're both deeply held convictions that relate to fundamental values. Like, should do we really want to set the precedent of courts deciding those questions on behalf of the people? And because Roe v. Wade was, was let's say, rightly decided if you're a pro-choice person. But what we found out is that what the court giveth, it can take it away. You know, that's part of the issue here. Be careful what you wish for. If you really empower a court to make decisions in place of an elected Congress or parliament, you're playing with fire because you have no way of guaranteeing what those nine judges are going to do 20 or 30 years down the road um, when yeah, different judges are appointed. And especially on an issue which is so vague as, uh, you know, as Roe was. I mean, I think you say Roe was rightly decided if you're on the right side of it, but uh, many pro-choice people like me have been critical of Roe for a long time in the sense that I just don't understand it. I don't understand how you how you find in the Constitution a right to privacy and then conclude that because people have a right to privacy, they also have a right to kill very small babies. Uh, like if you're on the, and I don't believe that it, that it is wrong to kill very, very small babies in the womb, but if you're on the side of morality that thinks that it is, it hardly settles the question to say, well, because women have a right to privacy, they have a right, I mean, you don't, the right to privacy doesn't give you a right to go into a room and in private kill somebody. Like if the, right. the substantive question here about abortion is whether or not it's okay to kill uh, a tiny little baby in a woman's tummy. And I mean, maybe this is a way to wrap things up and bring it back to this, your ideas about consensus and polarization, because this is one issue where it's totally infuriating to people on both sides, the way that the other side characterizes the issue. Uh, the overturning of Roe has caused lots of conversations about abortion access in America, you wouldn't know it from listening to the left who talk exclusively about healthcare and women's reproductive rights and women's access to healthcare, which of course is infuriating if you think that you're protecting babies from being murdered because you're not talking about the woman's right to her to healthcare. You're talking about her right to do something to another member of the species homo sapiens. And if you believe that all members of the species homo sapiens have a right to the sanctity of their own individual lives, regardless of how tiny they are, then it's a dodge. It's just a dodge to talk about women's health care. And then obviously, if you're pro-choice, then people constantly talking about being killing babies is infuriating because as far as you're concerned, it's not a baby when it's a blastocyst the size of a pinhead, uh, which is often what we're talking about. Um, so where do you, where does that leave you? I mean, it strikes me as deeply unedifying the lack of consensus. It'd be great if it'd be great if I had faith that your articulation of of partisanship and uh, mutual distrust and hostility among the populace, if I had faith that your your vision was true, that like, what is being disagreed upon are deep foundational questions, but it strikes me that you've just got people talking across each other and never actually landing on the fundamental question, which is, okay, we almost all agree that it's wrong to kill a baby that's just about to be born. And we almost all agree 
that it's okay under some circumstances to kill a fetus, a blastocyst that's one day old. So shall we hash out something in the middle here somewhere? Like there's not a lot of that going on. And if that was the lack of consensus, I would agree with you that phony consensus is bad. But to some extent, I want more phony or not phony consensus around at least the contours of the things that we actually disagree about instead of just using our own caricatures of our enemies to talk past one another. Yeah, I that does sound nice when you describe it that way. I mean, so here's what I'd say is part of the issue here, and it applies to the abortion debate, but also to any of these really stark cultural war issues, is I think that I think that Americans, but also extending this elsewhere to various degrees, folks have moved away from everyone is a consequentialist. They like democracy when it produces the outcomes that they prefer. And it's just amazing, like the lack of principle that we see in, you know, right out there. People don't even try to hide it anymore. And this outcomes oriented approach to democracy is part of what I try to push back against in my own work. Um, that we have to commit to the means of democracy and then suspend our judgment on the ends. I mean, obviously, as individuals, we can feel strongly about whatever we feel strongly about, but we have to we have to avoid this sense that the democratic process will ever conclusively lead to a final answer on on a lot of these contested issues. I mean, I don't really see much likelihood that in the coming, years, perhaps even decades, we're going to find a resolution as Americans on the trans issue or gender identity or abortion. I think there's just too many Americans who believe you're right that maybe, you know, at some basic level, there could, you could maybe try to split the middle. And, you know, there's a lot of polls that suggest that, oh, well, most people are actually okay with the middle ground of allowing abortion in the first 12 weeks, but not thereafter. That might be true in some abstract sense on the national level, but when you look at more conservative states uh, on the local level, um, you find that there are there are in practice a lot of people who are not even comfortable with the 12-week first trimester allowance. And then the question is, if they're participating in elections and they win elections, do they not have the right to channel their preferences if they're doing so peacefully and legally. And at some basic level, the only thing that we have left is to say what the democratic process produces is what the democratic process produces. Again, as long as there are no like um, constitutional violations. And again, like, thank God in America, we, we do have, we do have the courts playing enough of a role And here. I'm not just talking about the Supreme court, but we have a judicial structure that does step in when certain clear red lines are crossed. And, you know, that that's part of why I am more optimistic because our system has been resilient. And this is especially true, obviously, for established democracies. Um, younger democracies, obviously, it's a little bit more difficult. But there should be faith in the democratic process in a country like America. And we shouldn't see the election of someone like Donald Trump in 2024 as the end of the republic as we know it. I'm pretty confident that 
Well, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say that. So I don't want people to come back in like 10 years when America's a fascist state and be like, oh, Shaddy was on Josh's <laughs> podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations in 2023. Did you see what he said? So I, you know, I look, I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't, I'm not a doomer in that respect. And I do think there is a lot to believe in and a lot to be proud of um, in many of our democracies and certainly in my own right here in America. So um, I just think it would be better if left-leaning Americans, instead of complaining about disinformation, how Trump supporters are irredeemable and all of this, to actually work on the arts of persuasion, to actually try to persuade more ordinary Americans to like the Democratic Party. And that can be done by, you know, for example, not being super woke all the time on these very you know, these lightning rod culture war issues that don't actually have broad support in society or something like people care about crime. Don't gaslight people and tell them that their worries about crime are a figment of their imagination and giving them charts telling them that they're better off now than it was in the 1990s. I mean, you know, there's there's things that you can do to persuade people and that's where I think the democratic process becomes almost beautiful in a way that at some level it forces people to actually go out there and do the work of maybe persuasion isn't the right word, but you at least have to have faith in your fellow citizens. Mm -hmm. And I worry sometimes that, you know, someone who identifies as um, vaguely center left, but heterodox like I want the party that I almost always actually, you know, either I've not voted or voted for the Democratic Party. I haven't yet voted for a Republican, but I would want my own my own party, the Democratic Party, to be more responsive, um, more responsive to broad sentiments around these issues that people care about and not just ignore them and tell people that they're wrong in this patronizing style. That to me is a better answer than creating a lot of fear about the democracy dying in 2024, which is still, you know, largely a speculative thing that people bring up. Look, I don't know exactly what's going to happen in 2024, but I do know that our democratic process still works and that you should try your best to prepare for 2024 so that your side can win instead of imagine, you know, saying, well, oh, you know, Trump this, Trump that, which I think is a distraction from, you know, what really matters most. Mm. It's interesting. And even, I mean, I would add to that, uh, as you persuade me back to <laughs> off the <laughs> I was on, I would add to that, that even if you think it's a lost cause to persuade your political opponents of what you believe, the act of attempting to do so will refine your own beliefs and will hone your own case and will make you even more persuasive to people who kind of already agree with you but aren't quite sure why or aren't 100% on the fence or aren't exercised enough to bother going out and uh, persuading other people to vote or even voting themselves. Uh, so, yeah, the exercise of persuasion is a good in its own right, even if, uh, even if no one ends up being persuaded. Um, Shadik, I want to ask you some first date questions, which I always end uh, with. These are kind of Rorschach uh, questions. Okay, first thing that you <laughs> had, uh, you don't have to don't have to overthink the answers. Uh, what's uh, okay. happening now that that in twenty years people will look back on and laugh about? What's happening now? Yeah. 
<laughs> okay. Um, uh, I think some of the, the, the hyper woke stuff looking back, I think, you know, people are going to say, maybe they won't laugh. Well, it depends if it's past. Like if people come to their senses, then maybe they'll laugh in retrospect and say, oh my God, those, those Americans in the 2020s really got into some like crazy shit when it came to like wokeness. And that was kind of ridiculous. And they might laugh about that. Um, maybe also the fact that we love football so much is that's what I'm told. Like Americans love American football and you know, I'm not a huge <laughs> fan and you know, maybe people will, maybe will like be the kind of country that's into the real kind of football, which is in other words, soccer in 30 years, um, you know, God willing, but you know, not going we'll to wait and see. Not going to happen. <laughs> Sorry to break it to you. Uh, Americans, <laughs> Americans are going to persist in gridiron. Um, how, uh, what, what's the best time of day uh, and the best time of night for you? When do you enjoy being up? That was just a little taste of our first date questions, which you'll be able to hear all of if you subscribe to Uncomfortable Conversations. Not just the questions, but of course all of our banter around them, which become a subsequent little episode of themselves. Uh, if you do subscribe, you will not only hear that, but you'll also hear no ads on any episode ever. And you'll get additional content, including opportunities to connect directly with me. You can subscribe at uncomfortableconversations.substack.com or follow the links in uh, the, uh, the podcast description. Uh, otherwise, I'll see you next time on Uncomfortable Conversations.